read. I'm one of those weird uh, bookish type people. Uh, I like to read, and I really like to read biography. And I really, really like to read autobiography. Now, autobiography is, uh, it, it takes the right person to write an autobiography, right? You have, to, you have to have two things, an interesting life and the ability to write, right? Now, some people have one or the other, so sometimes it's a little challenging to find like a really good autobiography. Usually we read biography, something written about someone or by someone else about someone uh, really interesting. And, and to hear someone talk about their own life is really powerful, especially if you've had the opportunity to observe that person's life from the outside and kind of watch them live and see the kind of amazing things that they do, and then later on to read their own personal account of what it was like to live during those days. We get opportunity. There's a lot of different biographies and autobiographies out there for for you to read. And I think what's interesting is this, that often we observe someone's life. We observe a Winston Churchill. We observe a a Charles Haddon Spurgeon. We observe different people throughout history, and, and we watch their lives that seem incredibly powerful and incredibly strong and incredibly confident. And then you read their autobiographies about what they were thinking and feeling during those times. And they describe how full of fear and anxiety and uncertainty they were during those times. And I think sometimes we look at other people and we, we see them and we see kind of the outside of their life. And we know the inside of our lives and we think they're a different kind of human being than I am. Well, I think we're going to get something from this passage this morning that's very similar to us being able to observe the outside of someone and then actually hear some of his autobiography about his own life and how he was actually thinking and feeling during during this time. So I'm going to read through this passage here in Acts. We're going to read Acts verses 1 through 23 And I'm going to read slowly, and I'm going to stop a lot to make sure that we understand what's going on here. Okay, So this is going to take a few minutes because I'm going to read it similarly to the way I just read Joshua, um, where we stop and and talk some. Okay, Acts chapter 18. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Okay, Now, again, some of you like doing this. I like doing this. You've got your maps there in the back of your Bible, and you can find out, okay, where was Athens and where is Corinth? By the way, this is all in the country of Greece, what we would call modern-day Greece. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. Are you already confused? In this passage alone this morning, there are 11 different people named and 14 different places named. So this week when I was studying, I had my map out. I had everybody's names highlighted and all the places highlighted, and I was still confused. Okay, so if you're like, ah, I'm already seasick, hang on. And he went to see them, right? Paul went to see Priscilla and Aquila. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Did you know that Paul had an occupation? He wasn't just like spiritual Superman. This guy had calluses on his hands and the ability to do something, unlike other preachers I know. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy finally arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with what? What was Paul doing? What was Paul always doing? He was occupied with the Word, the Word of God, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Did the Jews believe in the Christ? Careful, that's a little bit of a trick question. They they did believe 
in the Messiah. They were anticipating the Messiah. Did the Jews believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah? No. So here he is saying, look, you've been waiting for the Messiah. You've been waiting for the Christ. He, he came. He was crucified, but he has been raised from the dead. And let me explain to you how this works. Verse 6, and when they opposed him and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Now, Paul's getting a little sassy here with, with the Jews here in Corinth. He tells them, he explains to them about Jesus, and they say, no, we don't believe that. Get out of here. They oppose him. And Paul like you or I might be inclined to do, goes, well, fine. If you're going to be that way about it. And it says he shook out his robes. It's kind of a weird thing. We're like, what, is, what does that even mean? Like, you know, what, what is so imagine you're, you're trying to accomplish something, you're trying to get something done, and, and, and it's almost like what our gesture would be like this, like I'm, I'm done with you, right? I'm going to dust my hands off of you. Um, other places in the Bible talk about shaking the dust off of your feet, right? Like, I, I'm leaving you, and I don't even want any of your dust to go with me, right? Like, I'm, I'm shaking the dust of you and your people out of my, I don't even want your smell in my clothes. I'm out of here. I've explained the gospel of Jesus Christ to you, and now I'm innocent. If you die and you're judged, your blood, y- your own um, punishment, that's on you, man. I'm going to go tell people who are going to be more receptive to hearing this. I'm going to go tell the Gentiles, the unclean people, about the Messiah. And he left there, verse 7, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. Having two names like that, Titius Justice, one would have been like a Roman name and one would have been a Greek name. But he was a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Right? So I mean, these are small, I mean, they're, 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 the towns are full of people, but they weren't, you know, we think that everything's kind of condensed here in Dalhart. No, no, I, I think I've explained to you before that like many of the, many of the um, villages during the time of Christ, um, especially in Jerusalem, they would have had three, 400 people living in uh, an area the size of the church property, the three acres that we have here. So houses and buildings and stores would have been just right there next to each other. Titius Justice, his house is right there next to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, he believed in Jesus Christ. He believed in the Lord together with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. They were, Paul was making converts here in Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And what Jesus is saying is this, look, there's not going to be any physical harm that's going to come to you here in this city, and I have, I have many more converts. I'm not done with you here yet. Keep talking. This vision that the Lord is giving to Paul in this moment, he's assuring Paul, I'm not done with you. I've got more work for you to do here. You're not done in Corinth yet. Verse 11, so he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, right? Imagine, you know, so Paul's getting ready to defend himself. Ah! As he was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter concerning the wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. Right? So Gallio is... Um, is a Roman officer, right? And the Jews are coming to him with this religious complaint. Gallio represents the, you know, the occupying Roman um, force there in Greece at the time. And so he says, uh, if, if this were some kind of legal um, infraction, a, a crime, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it's a matter of 
questions about words and names, Jesus and Messiah and stuff about your own law, you go figure it out yourself. I refuse to be a judge of these things. You ever hear your kids fighting and you say, you work it out. Work it. I'm, not, I'm not jumping in on this one. You work it out. I'm not sure that that's always good parenting, but I've, I've done that before. Galio is doing that. You guys work it out. Work it out. I'm not, I am not going to be judge of this thing. And he drove them from the tribunal. So verse 17 is kind of weird. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. Now, this would definitely be really bad parenting, right? Like if I said, you guys go work it out. And then the way they're going to work it out is a fist fight right there in front of me. And I just kind of, you know, yawn and, and ignore it. That's bad parenting. That's what Gallio does. He says, this is a religious thing. You guys go work it out. And so they grabbed the ruler of the synagogue there at the time and literally whipped the fire out of the guy in front of Gallio. And Gallio literally watches it and goes, I told him, I don't care. Work it out. They, they're going to act like infants, like children in front of me. I, I, this is no, no concern of mine. Verse 18, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila. We're going to talk about that in a minute. With him, Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincre, he, he, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. That's another weird, like, what, why is this even being included? Why is he cutting his hair? Why do, why do we care that he's cutting his hair? What's up with this vow? Well, just real quick, let me explain to you what's happening here. Paul had probably taken upon himself a, a Nazarite vow where when God promised protection to him, as he saw God's protection, he made a vow that uh, he wouldn't cut his hair in thankfulness to God's protection of him. And these Nazarite vows were typically entered into for a specific length of time. And so after, after Paul had shown his devotion and appreciation to what God had done for him, he had said, you know, for six months I'm not going to eat any alcohol, touch any dead things, um, or cut my hair. And then at once the time had expired, he cut his hair, ending the vow. Now, does this vow remind you of anyone else in the Bible? Anybody? Yeah, Samson, right? And Samson, Samson was unique. He had entered into the exact same vow that Paul was entering into here, but Samson's vow was a vow for lifetime. It was a lifelong vow that God had commanded his parents enter him into. So never cutting hair, never touching dead things, never drinking alcohol, that sort of thing. So it appears that Paul, this, this uh, cutting his hair here is indicative of the fact that he had entered into this vow showing uh, profound appreciation to God for what God had done for him. Verse 19, and they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia, and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now, when we think about Paul and what he's doing here, how does he come off to you? What, what, I mean, if we were to watch in real life and in real time, if we were there in some of these cities and watching Paul operate, I think we'd look at him and go, this dude is unstoppable. I mean, he is he is a li- he's like a spiritual superhero. He just goes and goes and goes, and everywhere he goes and everything he does, there is this intense, powerful zeal that is unstoppable. This dude's having visions at night. I mean, this guy's incredible. There's no way any of us would ever be like Paul. That's, the, that's what I get from Acts chapter 18. But did you know, did you know that Paul records an autobiography for us of this time in his life? 
It's written in your Bible. Paul literally wrote out what he was thinking and how he was feeling during this time in the city of Corinth. Anybody have a guess as to where Paul would have written down how he was feeling while he was in the city of Corinth? Corinthians. You, you are scholars. 1 Corinthians. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I love this. This is so encouraging to me because Acts chapter 18 is not encouraging to me at face value. I don't get visions at night. I don't have unstoppable superhero powers where I go into cities that have never, you know, that have hardly any witness to Christ and see people come to know Christ. I don't have God telling me at night, hang in there, bro. I got many more things for you to do in this place. So I look at Paul and go, whoo. Man, must be nice to be an apostle. But, but how does Paul himself describe how he felt at this time? In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse, well, I'll just start in verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, right? So now Paul has left Corinth, but he's writing a letter back to them. And he's saying, when, when I came to you, brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, which is the Grecian way. Right? The Greeks were powerful orators. And Paul's saying, when I came to you at Corinth, I didn't come strong and powerful like everybody else around you. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So let's talk for a, just a second as we're looking. Well, let me, let me, let me finish finish this and then we'll, 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 we'll go. Oh, we don't have a PowerPoint this morning. I'm sorry. I didn't get the notes to Jay at the time. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you. Are you looking at verse two, three? I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message, they were not implausible words of wisdom. He's saying they weren't in demonstration of my power, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So we're going to use 1 Corinthians 2, 2 through 5, to help us understand Acts 18, 1 through 23. You ready? Point number one, Paul had single-minded zeal. He had single-minded zeal. Look in verse 2. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Here's what Paul is saying. When I came to you at Corinth, there was one message that I had. I had one message for you. I came to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. He is single-minded in his, in his work. He's single-minded in what he had come to do. In Acts chapter 18, as I studied through it, I kind of identified like seven different scenes in, in these verses, right? So he's with um, Priscilla and Aquila, and then he's in the synagogue, and, and then he's with Titius Justice, right? There's, there's a lot of different scenes that are happening here. But in every single one of them, let's notice what Paul is doing. So let your eyes float through eight, uh, chapter 18 with me. Verse 4, it says this, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. What was he trying to persuade them of? Yeah. That's right, Christ crucified, the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 5, the end of verse 5, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So he, he's convincing them that Jesus is the Christ. Look in verse 8, uh, toward the end. Many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. What's Paul doing? He's speaking about Jesus. Look in verse 9. God tells Paul, go on speaking and do not be silent. What's, what's God telling Paul to go on speaking about? Jesus. 
Verse 11, he stayed there a year and six months, and what was he doing? He was teaching the word of God. Look in verse 13. This man is persuading people to worship God. Who's persuading people to worship God? Paul is persuading people to worship God. Look down in verse 19. It says there at the end of verse 19 that he reasoned with the Jews. What was he reasoning about with the Jews? That Jesus is the Messiah. Look at the end of verse 23. It says that he strengthened all the disciples. What do you think he was strengthening all the disciples with? The good news about Jesus Christ. So here is a man who is single-minded and focused in what he is doing and what he is saying. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul says, I came to you to, uh, to, to proclaim to you Jesus Christ, right? I came to you, oh, what's the exact word? I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. Acts chapter 18 makes it clear, yeah, what he said he did, he did. He did do. He was, he was zealous. He was passionate with the good news of Jesus Christ. We see that he's consumed with speaking the gospel. J.C. Ryle, who was a pastor in England a couple of hundred years ago, in his book called Practical Religion, describes a zealous Christian this way. A zealous person in Christianity is preeminently a person of one thing. It is not enough to say that they are earnest, strong, uncompromising, meticulous, wholehearted, and fervent in spirit. They only see one thing. And they care for one thing. They live for one thing. They are swallowed up in one thing. And that one thing is to please God. Whether they live or whether they die, whether they are healthy or whether they are sick, whether they are rich or whether they are poor, whether they please man or whether they give offense, whether they are thought wise or whether they are thought foolish, whether they are accused or whether they are praised, whether they get honor or whether they get shame. For all this, the zealous person cares nothing at all. They have a passion for one thing. And that one thing is to please God and to advance God's glory. They feel that like a candle they were made to burn, and if they are consumed in the burning, they only have done the work for which God has appointed them. Now, you might read about Paul in Acts 18 and read uh, this beautiful description of the zealous person by J.C. Ryle and think, yeah, that ain't, that's not even like for me. Paul is an apostle. Like, that's his deal. He gets to do that. I'm just an average Joe, and I don't have to worry about that sort of thing. But brothers and sisters, I, I actually don't think that that's the takeaway that we should get from this passage. Friends, God is calling upon all of us to live with single-minded, zealous passion for one thing, and that is the glory of God. And I want to prove to you from this passage this morning that you don't have to be an apostle to do that. It's not because he was an apostle that he lived that this way. Because look back again in verse, uh, verse 3. Because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Paul had an occupation, a physical thing that he did. And even when he was involved in the most mundane things in life, you see, verse 4, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks that Jesus was the Messiah. You see, all of us have been given different tasks. Not all of us are supposed to be pastors and teachers. Not all of us are called to this, what we call, full-time Christian service. And yet, all of us are to live our lives with this kind of zealous passion. You can and should be a farmer who is consumed with pleasing Christ. I Actually, I love, in some ways, I, well, I won't say that. That's not, not true. But I do love talking with farmers 
about their relationship to the land and their relationship with the Lord. God did put Adam and Eve in a garden and said, go go work and take care of this and take care of the the plants and take care of the animals. And living in an agricultural community, sometimes I I love, I, I learn about the Bible just from living in the kind of community that we live in. Brothers and sisters, you can and should take care of the ground and grow crops, having the desire to please God more than anything. And you should take care of cattle in a way that you have the desire to please God more than anything. And you, and you, and you take care of trains and drive trains and teach children and whatever else the rest of your occupations are. I covered probably 90% of the congregation with those those four. We can do this in a way where our, our preeminent desire is to please God. And whether we're praised for it or persecuted for it, that's not what matters. Uh, uh, there's there's a, a, a biography that I'm familiar with, uh, and the title is called One Candle to Burn. And it's about Mr. Dal Washer, who was a missionary in uh, Togo, Africa. He was the founder of the mission that we went to years ago. It's a biography written about Dal. And the title of it was it's called One Candle to Burn. And he said, I've only got one life, and it's like a candle, and I want to burn it out for the king. And candles burn brightest in the darkest of places, and so I'm going to go where there is no gospel witness. And so, so our, our lives are candles, and brothers and sisters, let them burn for for the pleasure of the king wherever you are. He was single-minded in his zeal. And he talks about that right there in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. He says, nothing but Jesus. The, The famous missionary to the American Indians a couple of hundred years ago was a man by the name of David Brainerd. David Brainerd, in his autobiography, in his journal, he wrote this, I hardly ever so longed to live to God and to be altogether devoted to Him. I wanted to wear out my life in His service and for His glory. Sounds a lot like Paul, doesn't it? All this focus and zeal makes me think that Paul is this powerful and confident and strong man. But Paul's autobiography of himself in Acts chapter 18, recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, doesn't end in verse 2, does it? Continue reading on in verse 2, and he says in verse 3, I was with you, and here now Paul is going to describe for us something that's really, really shocking to us. Because we would think that Paul would say, I was with you in power and confidence and strength. And the Apostle Paul, one of the men arguably that was one of the most greatest uh, used in the history of humanity, says, I came to you and was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And that's not Paul just being humble. He's actually saying, I was afraid and physically, like trembling literally means like my body was shaken. You ever been so scared that your body was shaking? That probably doesn't happen real often in our lives, but if it has happened to you, you remember that it happened. And Paul is saying, look, I showed up at Corinth and I was scared. I was afraid. So you think about all that he had been through already in his life, the shipwrecks and the persecutions and the beatings that he had already suffered. So he knows what it's like to suffer, right? And when you get beat up and when you get hurt, right, it's like petting the dog that bites you, right? You do it once and then you don't do it again. And Paul thinks, I know what happens when I go into a town and I start telling people that Jesus is the Messiah. At best, they kick me out, and at worst, they kick me. They kick me. We see, secondly, the extreme weakness of Paul. So point number one was we saw Paul's single-minded zeal. Secondly, we see Paul's extreme weakness. He has an accurate self-understanding of who he is. <coughs> We can see some things in this passage that would make it hard and contribute to the weariness and the fatigue that Paul tells us about in 1 Corinthians. Like I said, Paul's already been through so much to this point when he arrives at Corinth. Verse 6 talks about how that the people opposed him and how he shook out his robes and said, I'm leaving here. So there's frustration in the ministry. 
verse 12, talks about how that hit the Jews, his own people, united to attack him. So he's having a hard go of it here. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 3 and 4, describe for us the extreme weakness, fear, and much trembling that Paul is experiencing. Now, I don't know that this was obvious to the people that were around Paul and in Paul's life. We don't get it from Acts 18, but we get it clearly from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We see that Paul is a man. He's a real person just like us. We see that he is weak, and he knows that he's weak. He hears the, the, the powerful speeches of the Greek orators around him, and he realizes, I'm not as good I'm not as good at speaking as those guys are, right? It would be like me listening to a bunch of TED Talks, and if you, if you know what TED Talks are, me listening to a bunch of TED Talks and then showing up on Sunday and realizing, man, I just, I'm not that good. Like Those guys are really good. They've got powerful, winsome ways to, sh- to say a lot of really powerful things in a short amount of time, right? I say a lot of mediocre things in a lot of time, right? No amens necessary. I mentioned David Brainerd earlier, and he talked about his zeal to serve the Lord by serving the American Indians a couple of hundred years ago. On November 25th, after he had preached to uh, a society that was evaluating him for ministry, David Brainerd said that he was, he was grieved for the congregation that they should sit there to hear such a dead dog as I preach, and that I am totally unworthy to preach to others who are so much better than I am. So here's David Brainerd, one of the most famous missionaries in American history, and he acknowledges when it comes to speaking to other people, he preaches a sermon, and then he goes back and he writes in his journal that he was embarrassed that they had to sit and listen, and he calls himself a dead dog. I'm embarrassed that the congregation had to listen to such a dead dog like me preach those people who are so much better than I am. And anyone who is honest with himself as he preaches the word of God before other people has to admit that there are many times where on a Sunday afternoon he thinks, man, I'm sorry that the people of Liberty Baptist have to sit and listen to such a dead dog as I, people who are such, so much better than I am. That, that's, a, that's a common occurrence amongst God's ministers. Paul felt it. David Brainerd felt it. And other men who serve the Lord feel it. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 and 9, he says, he talks about his own weakness, and he says, he, he says, I will boast in my weakness because God's grace is sufficient for me. Paul feels his weakness, and it's an accurate self-understanding. But that's not the end of the story here in the life of Paul. Paul is zealous for Christ. He's single-minded. He's devoted. He knows where he's going. He knows what he's supposed to do. And yet he feels incredibly weak. And friends, we see in this passage that God shows up to Paul in this weakness and he gives Paul a word that strengthens Paul for the task that he's given Paul to do. And friends, God shows up for us to speak a word and give us the awareness that we need in order to carry on for Paul. So we see, or for God, we see Paul's zeal. We see secondly, Paul's weakness. And then lastly, we see God's power. Number three, We see the power of God in this passage. Look in verse 9. The Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid. I need to do this sometime. I've never done it. I'm sure others have done it. Imagine going through the Bible and and recording every time God addresses someone and says, Do not be afraid. That's That's a pretty common occurrence in the Bible, right? We read from the book of Joshua this morning. Several times in the book of Joshua, God shows up to Joshua and says, be strong and of courage, be of good courage. Do not be afraid, right? Throughout the Bible, God shows up to his people and says, don't be afraid. Why does God show up for Paul and say, don't be afraid? Was it because Paul was overconfident? No, it was actually because Paul was so paralyzed by fear in this moment. that He's, he's in with much trembling. And so God graciously comes to Paul in a vision at night and tells him, don't be afraid. Go on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And God gives Paul a little bit of a a window, a little bit of a protective umbrella in the moment. He says, 
There's no one who's going to attack you to harm you right here, right now. Right? It, it, it's not like never in the future. It's just like for right here, right now, in this city, the work that you're doing in this city. And you'll notice it doesn't, it, it, he doesn't simply say no one will attack you because there are other people who are going to bring some assault against Paul, but he's saying no one's going to attack you to harm you. Physically, you're going to be okay for a while here in Corinth. And God comes to Paul, and we see, first of all, that God cares for Paul. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And, and one of the other ways that we see God caring for Paul, and it's implied in this passage, but I want to draw attention to it. Remember I said that there's 11 different people named in this passage? And notice how many of these people are believers that God brings into Paul's life for the purpose of strengthening and encouraging him. See, we are tempted to what I call Lone Ranger Christianity. Remember the, the show, The Lone Ranger? All right, there's probably newer versions of it, but the one that's in my brain is still like the old black and white one, right? And the Lone Ranger was a guy who rode around alone. He had Tonto, but don't think about Tonto right now because that ruins my illustration. The Lone Ranger was alone. He was the Lone Ranger. He didn't have other rangers, right? I already blew it since I mentioned Tonto. He rode around by himself, taking things in his own hand. And, and, and as Christians, sometimes we can be guilty of living the Christian life as the Lone Ranger, we don't need other Christians. We don't need a pastor. We don't need the church. Now, obviously, you're here this morning, so I, you know, maybe you don't need to hear this as much as the people who are away from here. But we all do need to hear this. Friends, we, we need each other. And when you look around this room, you might think to yourself, really, I need those people? You need those people. Weak Christians need other weak Christians to say, hey, we're weak. Let's go to the God of power. Aquila and Priscilla, Titius Justice, others that come into Paul's life, and certainly they're speaking words of encouragement and power to him. Don't you imagine that as Paul and Priscilla and Aquila are sewing tents together, however you make tents, I'm guessing you sew them together, right? They're making tents together, and don't you think that Priscilla and Aquila are feeding the, the prophet of God, right, and, and speaking words of truth, and they're having sweet fellowship together? You know what that's like, don't you? I hope you know what that's like. I hope that you know what it's like to sit down with another Christian. And you, you, it's not like you were forced into it in a Bible study. It can happen there, and that's a great thing. I spent probably an hour, hour and a half speaking with someone in my office this week. And when I left, I just thought, God, thank you. I, I needed that brother to just speak about you to me in these moments. Thank you. And I was strengthened by the conversation that one Christian had as they spoke into my life. It wasn't planned. It wasn't scheduled. It was completely unplanned and completely unscheduled. We weren't following a script. There weren't questions of accountability for each other. We were just talking about life and then constantly bringing this book to bear on different parts of what we were discussing. Paul knew what that was like. I hope you know what that's like. That's one of the ways that God's power is delivered to you through other Christians. God's care for Paul comes to him through the words that he spoke to him, through the Christians that he provides for him. God makes a promise to him that he won't be physically harmed. And God makes this assurance of success that there will be many in this city who will come to know me. So Paul can go and minister with confidence. Verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 2 says this, that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. We see Paul's weakness, or excuse me, we see Paul's focus. We also see Paul's weakness, and then finally we see the power of God. And Paul addresses it even in his autobiography here in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 5. He says, I came to you in weakness so that you wouldn't think I am awesome, but so that you would think that God is awesome. I thank God by his kind grace. I think it's either this last week or this week um, marks seven years of ministry here at Liberty Baptist Church for me and my family. I, I have been here long enough for you to be thoroughly 
unimpressed with me. And I think, thankfully, for the most part, you are. I feel deeply and profoundly loved by you. But I also don't feel like I'm pulling the wool over anybody's eyes, right? Like they really have me on this pedestal. I think you've seen me do well and you've seen me do poorly. You've heard me apologize to you, right? You've seen that he's just, he's just a dude like us, but he's supposed to preach on Sundays and help us through the rest of the week. That's what I'm trying to do by God's grace. I've been here long enough now where you're basically unimpressed with me. And so that, listen, verse 5 is happening here. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians, I just turned away from it. Verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 5. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. If I die today or tomorrow, I hope that you'll be sad, but I also hope that you won't be panicked. You'd be like, yeah, hey, we liked him. He was a good guy. We'll find someone else, and they will do this as well. They'll stand before us and they'll talk about what a powerful God we serve and we'll be generally unimpressed with him. And our impression will be that God is the one who can strengthen weak people like us. I stand in this congregation as a weak person surrounded by weak people. I know your stories. You know mine. Not, not anybody in here that I'm particularly impressed with. And that, I know that's vice versa. And so we follow the one who is impressive together. And so, Lord willing, I or whoever leads this congregation will have this testimony. Yeah, he was here. He was, he was weak. He was fearful. There were even times where he came to us in much trembling. But the power of God is what we saw, and the power of God is what we were drawn to. By God's grace, Paul keeps doing the right thing because he is assured and strengthened by God. Brothers and sisters, the Christian life is a difficult and challenging thing. There are people that we see sometimes who just turn their back on the Lord and walk away. I, I, in, in, I, I anticipated that this was going to happen, and, and it, is, it is happening, um, that during this coronavirus pandemic time, pastors are leaving the pulpit. They're tired, they're weary, they're discouraged, and, and so they're leaving. I've had at least two personal friends who have said, uh, yeah, I'm done. I'm done. I, I, I love Jesus, uh, but I just, I can't do this anymore. I'm tired and I'm weary. Brothers and sisters, that, that's not just a pastor thing. There are Christians, and, and there, are, there are those in our faith family, in our congregation, who these last months have been wearisome and fearful and tiring for you, and you just think, I just want to be, I just want to be done. Don't depend on your own strength. You don't have any. You are weak. That is the, and te Texans, we're just the worst at acting like we are. You, you, like, I, I'm, I'm to a place now where I realize there isn't anyone impressive, there isn't anyone strong, there isn't anyone powerful. You can have a lot of money, you can have a lot of land, you can, you can be the strongest dude in the room. Like, you're weak. Sorry, dude, you're weak. Not even because I know something about you, I just know you are. Because of what the Word of God, how the Word of God describes who we are. We are needy people. And we need God. David Brainerd, and I've, I've used him several times this morning because I wanted, I wanted to do this. I wanted to take the Apostle Paul and his powerful work for the Lord in his autobiography and compare it with another real-life Christian person, David Brainerd, who was powerfully used by the Lord, and he died when he was 29. He's 29. So he describes his weakness. I was like a dead dog. I'm embarrassed that people even had to listen to me preach. And yet, let me read to you from one. This is the third time I'm reading to you from his autobiography, from his journals this morning. And let me describe to you how David Brainerd felt about God. As I was walking in darkness, so he's describing how he felt unspeakable glory seemed to open to the view and the apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or view that I had of God. So now he's getting ready to describe as he's walking with the Lord how God gave him a view of God, such as I have never had before, nor anything that I had the least remembrance of, so that I stood still and wondered and admired I had now 
no particular apprehension of any one person of the Trinity, either the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, but it appeared to be divine glory and splendor that I beheld. And my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being. And I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all and forever. Do you hear what he's saying? I was pleased with the simple fact that he's God over everything forever. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, the loveliness and the greatness and the perfections of God that I was swallowed up in him. At least to that degree that I had no thought as I remember at first about my own salvation or scarce that there were such a creature as I. The Lord, I trust, brought me to a hearty desire to exalt him and to set him on the throne and to seek first his kingdom. So do you see what's happening here? As he's describing the way he saw God in this moment, he forgot about himself. He sees God for who God is, and he says, and I wanted to seek first the kingdom of God. I was fired up and ready to get back on task for God. I wasn't thinking about me. I wasn't even thinking about my weakness. I'm now thinking completely about God and who he is. This is the kind of view of God that David Brainerd had. This is the kind of view of God that Paul had. And this is the kind of view of God that you can have. I, don't, I think some of you in here don't believe that. You think Paul was unique, Brainerd was unique, was unique. I'm average. I'm never going to have experiences with God like that. You're wrong that you can't. You might not, but you can. What, what was Paul, what was Brainerd, what were they doing? They were spending time with God in his word. Th that's how it happens. That's, that's the only way it happens, as you open the Word of God and spend time with Him. Friends, uh, uh, I've said this before, everyone has time to do this, except mommies with brand new babies, okay? Mommies with brand new babies, you're the only ones I give a pass to. Everyone else has time to do this. Everyone does. You either need to stop doing something else or, you know, you need to cut something out of your life, right? But there's no one, like there's, there's just no one who doesn't have time for this, right? We, the, st the stats are too convicting, right? How much Netflix and YouTube and Facebook and like everyone has time for this. But this, this only happens as you spend time with the God of your soul. And so, brothers and sisters, I'm calling, I'm earnestly calling out to you to please spend time with God so that you're empowered by him. I've never met a strong Christian who's making disciples who has, who spends no time in the word of God. Ever. There isn't such a thing as that. Strong Christians that are growing and glorifying God by making disciples are people who know this book. I was, I was astounded yet again. My dear friend Tommy Kendall and his family were with us just a couple weeks ago. He's a missionary to Togo. Many of us got the chance to fellowship with him uh, while they were with us. And, and ever since I've known, I've known Tommy since, he was in, uh, since we were in college together. And ever since I've known him, I have marveled at how often he quotes the Bible and Bible verses in regular conversation. He's just always saying, oh yeah, Proverbs says this, Ecclesiastes says this, Mark says this, Acts says this. He's got the word of God in him, and so he's got the, the presence of God dwelling in and with him all the time. You're not too old to memorize scripture. You're not too forgetful to read the Bible and, and meditate on it. Like, I'm not giving anybody a pass. I'm putting us all on the hook this morning. You can have experiences like this with God if you will spend time with him. So in conclusion, 
I want us to leave this morning um, feeling the pressure and also feeling the power. And we need both. If you only feel the the pressure this morning, you're going to leave depressed and oppressed, right? Like, like, you know, that was convicting, and and he doesn't know how busy I am, and I don't care. It's been too hard. I'm not going to do it, right? Uh, Or you're going to leave trying really hard for a couple of days and fall flat on your face. We do need to feel the conviction and the pressure to obey and be with God. We also need to feel the promise of power that God has given us. This is not something that you're, that you're doing on your own. God has promised, the promise that, Paul, that God makes for Paul in verse 9 is given to Paul to strengthen him, to keep him going. Brothers and sisters, God has promised that his grace is sufficient for you, that his strength is made perfect in weakness. And so you go, you know what, God, I have, I've been disobedient. I've spent far more time doing stupid things than I have doing the most important thing in the world. Forgive me. Now, by your grace, strengthen me to spend time with you. I'm going to put my faith in the promise that you can and will be with me and, incur- and strengthen and empower me to do this. It's right and good for us to be zealous for God, but the reality is that you are weak. So you, you need to look to the words and the promises of God to sustain you. You need to know that God's work is his responsibility and yours. It's his responsibility. He will get it done, and it's your responsibility to partner up with him. This this week I had opportunity to sit down with someone for about an hour and, and share the gospel with them and I was really hopeful that at the end of sharing the gospel of Christ with them, that they would, that they would want to put their faith and, and, put, and, and uh, turn to Christ and put trust in him. And we got to the end, and they, they weren't interested in doing that. And I had to remind myself of this truth. It's my responsibility to share the gospel with people, and it's God's responsibility to save people. Brothers and sisters, it's your responsibility to get the Word of God out and open in front of you, and it's God's responsibility to make it alive in your heart and mind. It's both and, both God and us. Paul worked together with God to to accomplish the work. He was was single-minded and focused, and yet he was incredibly weak, and so he depended upon the Word of God, the the power of God in his life. Brothers and sisters, you and I need to be single-minded and focused, also recognizing that we are incredibly weak and trusting that God will empower and strengthen us. We need to ask for that strength from him. We're going to close with a song. So, Jay, if you could put that final song. I'm going to ask Josh to come up. We're going to conclude. This song is a song. uh, I want to look at the words here together real quickly. So, Jay, if you could throw those up there. Um, This song is a song of consecration. It's a, uh, a declaration of where our trust is. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And then the next phrase says, uh, I dare not trust in, in the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. So, so we, are, we are putting our confidence and trust and certainty and assurance not in ourselves, but we're going to completely and wholly trust in Jesus to do for us what we need done. If you're here this morning and you've never turned from your sin and put faith in Jesus to be your Savior, please talk with me after the service. I would love to explain to you from God's Word how you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. Let's stand, and this song uh, will be our concluding uh, uh, prayer of consecration, and then Diadne will come 